So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke, Luke chapter 19. We'll be in Luke chapter 19 and looking at verses 28 to 40 today. Luke 19, 28 to 40. And as you get there, we're finishing up a mini-series that we've been considering this question of who was this Christ to be? And we have by no means exhausted our discussion of that topic, but today we come to a conclusion on that particularity. And I pray that in the scriptures you've been able to see how Jesus has been the fulfillment of prophecy and how the gospels, the purpose of the gospels, right, are to tell us who is Jesus, that we might believe in him. And as we consider who Jesus is as the Christ, right, as the Messiah, we have to consider all the things he said and did, right? We can't just take one aspect of Jesus, but we have to consider him in total. And the reason is very simple, because either he is who he says he is, or he is a lunatic. Uh, He is someone that ought be disregarded because he is someone clearly mentally unstable, I say that uh, because one of the charges leveled against Jesus is that he was a blasphemer, that he spoke uh, blasphemous words, that he spoke falsely about God. Uh, John 10.33 tells us, John 10.33, the Jews answered him, It is not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. And while in our day there may be some confusion by by some scholars or so-called scholars uh, who suggest that Jesus never claimed to be divinity, that he never claimed to be God, well, the reality is clear that those in Jesus' day understood what he said as a clear claim to being God, right? The Jews were going to stone him, not for good works, not because they're like, well, we hate you doing good. But no, we hate you because you make yourself God. So the Jews in Jesus' day understood what Jesus was claiming. And either what Jesus claimed as, as to be the Son of God was true, is true, or it's something we need to disregard. And that issue comes into focus again today uh, as the people cry out praise to God as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And so today I want us to see in our passage that Jesus is the Lord, King of kings, and creator who is worthy of all praise. Jesus is the Lord, the King of kings, and creator who is worthy of all praise. So let us read from the scriptures this out of Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. And this is the word of the Lord. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, Uh, those who were sent went away and found it just as had been told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. 
And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Our passage today takes place in the context, right, of the kind of the final earthly days of Jesus leading up to his crucifixion. Uh, we know the day recorded here that we just read, right, as Palm Sunday. That's what we celebrate as Palm Sunday, right, where, where the disciples cut the palm branches, though we don't see that aspect of it here in our passage. Uh, so Luke records, though, a lot of teaching between uh, this point and the crucifixion. And what we have to realize, right, is when we see this in all the Gospels, there's a lot of fast movement at the beginning, but as we get closer and closer to the crucifixion, time slows down and everything is heightened and the teaching is emphasized the closer we get to that moment. More immediately in our chapter, in chapter 19 of the book of Luke, we see a wee little man who tries to see Jesus. And if you know the your your children's song, right, your Sunday school songs growing up, uh, that wee little man was Zacchaeus, right? And what did he do? He climbed up on a sycamore tree to see what he could see. I won't actually sing that for you because I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't do that to any of you. Well. But, right, so, so we have Zacchaeus and we have this, right, this man who was a tax collector who was so interested in seeing Jesus. He's being very undignified by climbing up into a tree uh, and he is changed by his, uh, by his coming to, to see and to know Jesus. And as Jesus speaks with him, uh, he has some conversation with him, and Jesus eventually gets to the point of telling a parable, uh, and that's what is most immediately before our passage, the parable of the ten minus, or we see it in the other Gospels as the parable of the talents. And that parable is important for us in the context of our passage, because in two places in it, in Luke 19.14 and in Luke 19.27, we have two verses that tell us something about Jesus's enemies. Jesus tells this parable and he, and he gives a, uh, an understanding about those who oppose him. Luke 19.14 tells us, uh, Luke 19.14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So right, this nobleman in the passage uh, is disregarded by uh, those who, are to, who he's to rule over. Luke 19.27, so the final verse of the parable, the nobleman replies as he, after he has returned, but as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Right, so th this is important for us to understand then as we get to the opposition we see in our passage today. It's a chilling word that we begin to see who exactly Jesus is talking about. But first, let's see in our passage in verses 28 to 35, the Lord has need. The Lord has need in verses 28 through 35. So, and when he had said these things, and again, the these things are the, the things he has been speaking with Zacchaeus and, 
and the parable uh, of the ten minus. And he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, right? This is his purpose. He is going into Jerusalem. And he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany. And Bethphage, we don't know anything about in the scriptures. We don't have any real reference to it in the scriptures. But Bethany, we do. Bethany is a significant place because this is the place where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived. If you remember, these are very close friends of Jesus. Really, we could say that, right? If you look at John 11, you get the story of Lazarus's death and resurrection. And there it says that Jesus loved Lazarus. Now, does, doesn't Jesus love us all, right? That's, that's how the song goes. Jesus loves me, this I know. I'm going on the children's songs today, but... They're the easy ones to remember, I guess. But but as we write, Jesus loves, but there's something significant in the scripture when we see Jesus particularly mentioned of loving uh, a person or another, right? Uh, we could think of the apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Did Jesus love his disciples? Yes. But there's something significant about the love that um, that. Jesus bore towards the Apostle John, or maybe it's just that John was loved at all, right? That is significant to John as he writes this gospel. But I digress. So Lazarus, Martha, and Mary uh, are very important. And so Bethany is a very important place. And uh, it's about two miles east of Jerusalem. And Jesus sends his disciples onward to prepare something for him. Uh, He has a purpose in mind. And he tells them in verse 30, right, go into the village. Uh, We don't know which village, but it's the village in front of them. Uh, Maybe it was Bethany, right? Maybe it was Bethany because Bethany's kind of on the road to Jerusalem, uh, as it were. But go into the village and you're going to find there a donkey's young, a young donkey upon which no one has sat. And Matthew tells us the importance of this act. Matthew gives us the context to it. Matthew 21, 4 through 5. Matthew 21, 4 through 5 tells us this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And that comes from, from us uh, to us from Zechariah, Zechariah 9, 9. So if you want to write that reference down, that's the cross-reference for that. Zechariah 9, 9. So in telling his disciples, go and find this colt, what Jesus is saying is, go and find this colt that I may fulfill prophecy. That I may fulfill prophecy. Jesus is claiming for himself messianic prophecies. Prophecies about the Christ. He is saying saying something about himself in so doing this. Right? The religious leaders especially would recognize this claim that Jesus is making. Right? The religious leaders know the scriptures. They don't believe Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures because they're blinded to it, but they know the scriptures. Um, I've been studying in the book of Matthew, and if you remember, Uh, the, as the wise men come into town and they're looking for Jesus, they go to Jerusalem and they go to the king and King Herod says, 
gather the religious leaders and we'll find out what is to be said of the Christ. Where is the Christ to be born? And they know. The religious leaders know. Oh, the Christ? He's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's what the prophecies say. That doesn't make any difference in their hearts, right? In their minds, in their lives. But they know. They know the scriptures. And so Jesus knows they know the scriptures. He doesn't tell his disciples to go just find any animal. No, he tells them to find something specific, a specific animal. And he says, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it, right? Uh, this is something that we would probably think would happen. And we know it does happen because the passage tells us, right? But Jesus is anticipating the objection of the owner of the animal. And the response is, the Lord has need of it. Uh, and this is probably not... Uh, those who are hearing it, the owner of the animal hearing it, probably would not have understood the Lord being as in like the messianic title or the the Lord God as we kind of use that. Uh, Lord was just, uh, if we go back some in, you know, Western history, go back over to uh, England, uh, right? We call lords and ladies, and that's just a title, right? It's just a title of respect, like sir or madam. And so it was probably more like that. The, the owner would have said, oh, oh someone respectable needs it. There is someone who is, uh, who is someone worthy of respect has need of it. And they went away. The disciples, 32, they went away uh, and found it just as they had told them. Right? The disciples obey and surprise, not surprise. Uh, they find it exactly as Jesus says. And as they were untying the colt, verse 33 tells us, its owner said to them, why are you untying it? And now uh, we really need to ask, how did Jesus know all this? Right at this point, we do have to ask that question. How did Jesus know all this? And why was this uh, animal's owner so obliging? On the one hand, Jesus could be evidencing his divine knowledge, his knowledge of all things. Does Jesus know things about people and about situations that nobody else knows? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, go, go back to the early chapters of John, and you see uh, one of his disciples. Uh, Jesus calls one of his disciples, and he says, Philip, I remember when you were sitting under the tree, and, and you're a righteous man. You're a good man, Philip. And he's like, what are you talking about? How did you know that about me? Right? So Jesus knows things about people that nobody else does. And I think it's Philip, so I might be wrong there. You know, sometimes things get muddled. But that, So it could be Jesus evidencing his knowledge of all things. Why was the owner so obliging? Because Proverbs 21.1 tells us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. If he wanted to press upon this owner to be obliging and give of this cult... It is a small thing for the Lord Jesus to do. It seems to be a little thing that Jesus could both know this animal's existence and plan through his divine sovereignty for it to be at such and such a place at such and such a time as he needed it. And for the owner of the animal to lend its use to whomever may have need of it. On the other hand, we could say that Jesus prepared this beforehand. Why does Jesus know these particularities so well? Because he's planned for it. He knew he would be passing through. He knew he would be on his way to Jerusalem. And Jesus is self-conscious about this fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. 
And so for him to arrange with the owner of the animal to have it at, available at his call would be a small thing for him. Perhaps if he did send his disciples into Bethany, perhaps they went to the house of Lazarus. And do you think Lazarus would be obliging to Jesus for a cult? Absolutely, right? Absolutely. It could have been this. In the first instance, Jesus proves his divinity once more. In the second, he proves his intention to fulfill all prophecy. Either way, so if we believe either way, we find God receiving glory. Either way, Jesus is exalted. So scholars will say both are options. You read someone like Calvin, he tends to the Jesus knew divine, divinely, right? He's sovereign. Uh, you read more modern uh, commentators, they're probably going to lend toward the, well, he's prepared this, he's planned this. But either way, God is glorified. Understand that, right? Jesus is glorified, is exalted. Because the Lord Jesus had a need, and the need would be met in whatever way God determined best. Jesus would have all he would need to fulfill his mission. So verse 35 tells us, right? So, so they brought the colt back to Jesus and they threw their cloaks onto it. And they said Jesus on it. They threw their cloaks onto it because they didn't have a saddle for it. And so it would have been uncomfortable. And so to, to aid in comfort, here comes Jesus on the colt. And we might say here, here and, and comment upon why a colt, why a donkey's young? Because it is a, not merely a matter of prophecy but also a matter of who is jesus he's humble and lowly and yet he is the king of kings here he comes onto a, a donkey's young and he doesn't even have a saddle right he doesn't have the finery the refinement that the kings of old would have he doesn't ride as caesar rides right he doesn't have a cushioned chair upon which he sits and the people carries him into the city no he rides on the humble and lowly donkey. Uh, marvel at that. The creator of all. On a humble and lowly donkey. So the disciples obey. The Lord has need and is met. Let's continue and see the king has praise. The king has praise in verses 36 through 38. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. So the cloaks on the back of the colt are for Jesus's comfort, right? That they're there for his comfort. But the cloaks on the road are not for comfort. Uh, they're not concerned about the comfort of where Jesus steps. This is an expression of honor to Jesus, Right when we have weddings, what do we what do we do before the bride walks down? Sometimes, right? Traditionally, we recently had a wedding where this was done. Right? Is a a, a roller or, or some kind of cloth is pulled down? We roll out the red carpet. Right? We that's where we get that uh, understanding and saying. Right? We we prepare the way for those who are honored to walk down on on something that is plush or different or. Not common, right? And so that's what these disciples are doing. They don't have a garment train to roll before the king. So they do all that they have. They improvise. They throw their cloaks down. 
The scriptures tell us of another improvisation in like manner in Second Kings uh, chapter nine, verse thirteen. Second Kings nine thirteen. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, "Jehu is king." So just interesting there that we have another example right of the garments, the cloak being thrown down before the king, and so here. The garments are thrown underfoot are to give their king a royal pathway. Not on the common mud does he walk. Does this beast of burden walk? And verse 37 tells us as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. So he had gone up to the Mount of Olives and now he's Mount of Olives is higher than Jerusalem. So he's going down the Mount of Olives and we could say a lot about what happens on Mount Olivet, right? Uh, there's, there's a lot that happens there. But the whole multitude of his disciples, and so th- this is not just the 12 disciples are doing this. This is everybody who's been following around Jesus. Everybody who's interested in Jesus are f- is following him and is rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. They begin to rejoice and sing out to God. And, and why do they sing out? Right? Because of all the mighty works that they had seen. Uh, Luke does not record for us here in, in this narrative, but we know from John 11, one of the mighty works of Jesus is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And they're near to Bethany. It's soon to have happened. Lazarus, who's been dead three days in the grave, right? And as the King James says, he stinketh, right? He's rotting, comes out, not, not decomposed, <coughs> but composed, not dead, but alive, right? He didn't come out like uh, we see in zombie movies today with bits falling off. He came out whole, healthy what an amazing work of god right do you think that that could be cause for these people his disciples those who've been following after him to sing and rejoice that they have seen this borne witness to this that they've heard about this what fervor right what what excitement what marvel at this man, this prophet, this king who has come and done so many wonderful things, right? Not just that, but he's, but he's healed. He's cast out demons. He's given uh, blind people sight, lame people legs to walk on. And again, I think one thing, and we read that in Acts uh, 14 today. One thing I don't know that we often think about when the lame were healed how are they able to walk? For those who have been lame from birth, how are they able to walk? Right? Babies have to take little steps and uncertain steps and they fall and they. But when the lame are healed, they're not just given strength in their legs, they're given the mind to know how to walk. That's a miracle, right? That's, that's an amazing aspect of that that I think we often don't think about. That all these hindrances are entirely removed. 
So, so the massive crowd are exuberant here, right? The, the parallel in our day would be something like what we hear in sports stadiums, right? That, that there is singing and shouting and rejoicing. Uh, today, it's done for vanity and rather worthless things. But this is a moment of praise, right? The king has praise. These sing out much more uh, than because their team scored a goal or a touchdown or won some other point against the opposing team. They sing out because they feel, they know that salvation has come. Now, for many of them, their understanding of what that salvation is may be wrongheaded. We know that there were many, even the disciples, right? Even Jesus' closest disciples, the twelve, who had a complete misunderstanding about what what Jesus' purpose was, right? Their understanding of salvation was the Romans would be put away with, the Romans would be done away with, Israel would be a nation again. But Jesus came to deliver them from the greater and the more deadly foe, sin. But still they sing, right? They sing, and verse 38 says, they sing, saying, Uh, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And Matthew records additional notes of of song and shout in Matthew 21, 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Right? Hallelujah. Blessed be God from Matthew 21, 9. And as we read what Luke reports, though, I think the reason Luke gives us the version that he does is doesn't that kind of sound familiar to something else we've heard in the book of Luke? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. Now, because it's Christmas time, it has been recently Christmas time, right, that we might be able to hear that a little bit closer, a little bit more, uh, more uh, close to our ears. Luke 2.14 tells us, the angels sing out at the birth of Jesus, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among with those whom he is pleased. The king has his praise. This crowd worships God because of the, this one that he has sent, right? This, this Jesus that God has sent, they worship God because of him. They don't fully understand, but they say something aright in their praise, right? Glory to God in the highest. And peace in heaven because Jesus comes to do much more than bring peace to the kingdoms of the earth or to the city Jerusalem to which he's riding into. Indeed, after this passage, Jesus has mournful words to say about Jerusalem. Right? He, is, he is saddened by the response of Jerusalem, a response that we see in our own passage. And note that there can only be peace. Understand this. There can only be peace with God when God makes it. There is peace in heaven because God rules over it. And there will be peace on earth with those whom he is well pleased. There is peace with God only through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because mark well that no peace, there is no peace where sin and Satan reign. Satan promises peace, but it's empty. Sin promises peace, but it cannot deliver. 
Friend, that includes you, your heart, your life. If you do not submit your ways to, the, to Christ Jesus, you can have no peace. The king has his praise. And let's see, lastly, the creator has glory. The creator has glory in verses 39 and 40. The creator has glory. So this is the response of Jerusalem, and, and by and large, right? Some of the Pharisees, the Pharisees being these religious leaders, right? They, they are well regarded in the society in this time. We may have a very negative view of them, and that's because we see the negative view of them that Jesus speaks about them in the scriptures, right? That's, that's where our understanding comes from. But at the time, they're highly regarded. They are looked up to. They are considered religious leaders. And the Pharisees come, they're in the crowd, they draw close to Jesus and shout to him. And I imagine that they must be shouting because the multitude of the disciples are shouting and singing and rejoicing, saying, blessed is God, Hosanna in the highest, peace in heaven. It's probably a loud noise. And so for these people to respond to Jesus, they have to outshout the shouters. And what do they shout out? Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And that word there, teacher, in the Greek, it's not, it's not rabbi, as in the, the honorific that we see. It's, it's literally teacher. They don't countenance Jesus as anything more than a teacher. They don't want to give him honor or respect more than they have to. So they call teacher, rebuke. Tell them to stop it. Silence them. Shush them. Right? Jesus, get up there on the donkey and go, shh. Stop them. Certainly part of the problem, why, why do the Pharisees do this? Part of the problem is with Romans. The Romans would not look kindly on a king whom they did not allow or authorize to be installed or celebrated. That's part of the, the religious leader's argument before Pilate. Uh, one of the things against Jesus, right? In Luke 23, 1 through 2. Luke 23, 1 through 2. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Or we could look at John 11, verses 47 to 48. John 11, 47 to 48. This is after Lazarus is raised from the dead. And as the report gets back to the religious leaders, they convene a meeting. 11, John 11, 47 to 48. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. All right, so part of the subtext, part of the, the reasoning that Pharisees are scared, at least on the outset, they could be operating out of a concern about the Romans. The Romans don't take kindly to crowds coming together because crowds could be a riot. We know that in Jerusalem that there's going to be more soldiers just in case a riot does break out. We know they have one in custody, Bar-Jesus, 
who was someone uh, who was an insurrectionist and a murderer. Right, so the Romans take this stuff seriously. And so maybe that's what they're thinking. What might the Romans think? Uh, more importantly, what might the Romans do? But also consider what Luke has already told us about the Pharisees in this chapter. Right, The parable of the ten minus. Parable uh, in, in Luke 19.14. The parable tells us, But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. So as much as we might say that there's earthly dimension to their fear, the reality is much deeper than that. They hate Jesus. The Pharisees were uh, his enemies. Mind you, not all the Pharisees, right? We know of a couple. A couple of the Pharisees who had high regard for Jesus and followed him. But they are they hate Jesus by and large for many reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is that Jesus is more popular than they. Right? Jesus can bring the crowds and they don't. Uh, when they stand up to teach, everyone starts sleeping. Right? When Jesus stands up to teach, everyone's wrapped, right? Everyone's zoned in. They're jealous of the praise that flows forth to God on account of Jesus. You know, some of them were probably thinking, well, I don't ever get this kind of reception when I come to Jerusalem. Like I come, no, no, nobody even looks at me and acknowledges me. But here's Jesus, this upstart. He has no, he has no training. He has no credentials. Why does he get a party and I don't? Yeah, you know. It is. It's really that 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 childish. That's sad, really, right? That's sad. It's not the Romans that the Pharisees are really concerned about. It's their own pride. It's the same thing we see time and again in, in the book of Acts, right? Why did the Jews hate Paul? Because Paul can gather a crowd and they can't. might say something to us, uh, might be something for us to consider. Are we concerned with gathering a crowd or honoring God? And Jesus responds to these Pharisees in verse 40. I tell you, let me tell you, Pharisees, you who want me to rebuke my disciples. If these were silent, if these multitudes of disciples were silent, the stones, the very stones would cry out. Now the stones there, what stones is he talking about? Could be just the stones lying on the ground. Maybe he's talking about the stones of Jerusalem, the temple, the walls. But the point in the, is this, right? If the disciples were mute, the very stones would cry out. It is fitting that those created in the image of God give him praise. Understand that that is what you were created for. You were created to give praise and worship to God. 
He created all things for this end, His glory. But Psalm 14.1 tells us, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And how many fools there are in our own day who fail to give God the praise he is due. It is as Paul writes to the Roman church in Romans chapter 1. If you want to turn there, it's, I want to read a, a few verses, several verses. Romans 1, starting in verse 18. Romans 1, Paul writes to the Roman church, right? And, and this is, understand that this is the situation that we find ourselves in today. This is the situation that we find ourselves today in our society. What is America like? I'd argue it's a lot like what we read here. Romans 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, I know here in America, we don't often carve out statues and worship them. But we have our own false gods that we worship. Things resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The stones can recognize their creator and sing out. But how quick we are to be dumber than rocks. How quick we are to think we know better and worship the lesser created thing rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Here's the reality, friend. Jesus does not need your worship. God is not legitimized because people worship him. Because the most people worship him. So let's do popularity contents, right? Is God only God because he is the most worshipped? Or because he's trending on your social media platform of choice? Here's the reality. Even if you don't recognize God as God, the creation around you does. He does not need your praise because he has need of nothing. Jesus will get his praise even from the rocks if all mankind were silent. Now we, as God's creation, we owe to him a duty of worship. We owe to him a responsibility, an obligation of worship. Whether you would want to admit it or not, you owe Jesus praise. Because he is your creator. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord. And praise is his due. Jesus proved the truth of his words through his wondrous works. The miracles of Jesus proved the truth of his being the Messiah. And his resurrection from the grave proves his place as the Son of God. 
What transpired at Jesus' baptism proves true. In Luke 3, 21-22, Luke 3, 21-22, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and, he, and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus is worthy of praise, and should you fail to give it now, you will find naught but the divine wrath hereafter. If you do not acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord, you will find yourself cast out from his good presence forever. You will be the object of those words which Jesus said, uh, which we heard at the outset of today in Luke 19:27. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. But if you should turn to Christ and plead for his mercy, if you should turn from your sins, the evils you have done in thought and word and deed, if you turn to God, you will find one who is ready to forgive you. You will find one who has paid the penalty of your sins so that you may dwell in his presence forever, enjoying the wonders and glories of his grace. So have you not done so before, I would encourage you this day, repent, turn from your sins, turn to Christ Jesus and believe and worship. And that, brothers and sisters in Christ, is what remains for us, worship. We sing to the Lord God. We praise his holy name. We pray to him. Uh, we read his word and study it to hear from him. These are all the ways that we worship God, right? We seek him in all our ways. We do good works. We love one another, even as Christ Jesus has loved us. We obey him in all things, and we repent often because we fail often. Worship and praise of our great God and Savior should never be drudgery. And we should never do it grudgingly. If that is our perspective, if that is our understanding, something is wrong, right? If we approach worship together in such a manner and understand that this is a message for the church here too, right? If our worship becomes commonplace, drudgery, something we do grudgingly, we have failed and we need to repent and maybe we need to stop and start over. And I mean that quite seriously. God is worthy of all praise. Our aim in worship from start to finish is the glory of God. right? And again, just to emphasize that, when we talk about worship, I don't mean just singing. Singing is part of worship. Singing is a great part of worship. But everything that we do ought be worship. And as we gather together, right, when we pray, we're worshiping. When we read the word, when we hear it preached, we're worshiping. If you're listening right now, you're engaged in worship. Don't think of it just as singing. All we undertake to do together and apart should be worship. And while God could command us to worship and leave it at that, Right, so I said, our duty, our obligation, our responsibility before God is worship, is praise. God could command it, and that could be enough. But understand this. He shows us the wonders of his grace. 
He invites us to enjoy Him forever. In other words, He gives us reason to rejoice. He gives us reason to worship. We don't worship merely because we're commanded to it. We worship because it flows out of a heart that recognizes what God has done. That's what the multitude of the disciples were doing, right? Why were they worshiping God? Because of all the wondrous, the mighty works that they had seen. That's why they, they enjoyed seeing the grace of God. They had joy in their heart. And how does joy express itself? When it's towards God, it's worship. Right? When we, when we're joyful, we sing. Right? That's something natural that happens, right? Uh, when, when we get good news, we hum little tunes. And then other people around us get all grumbly and say, why are they so happy? Right? But that's a natural occurrence. That's the reality, right? That's the natural occurrence. And so if we understand the joy of our salvation, we worship. Right? This stems from God's great love for us. What reasons we have to worship God. What reasons we have to praise Christ our King. What reasons we have to give glory to the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. So let us consider this Jesus, the Lord, King of kings and creator who is worthy of all praise. Let's pray. O oh, great God, our Father, we praise you for your mighty works. Father, we praise you for the work of Christ Jesus on this earth, for the many things that he has said and done, not the least of which, certainly the greatest of which, is his going to the cross of Calvary to His being raised up on the tree and bearing the curse that we might bear Your blessings. He who is our propitiation, bearing Your wrath for sins, but not sins of His own, but for ours. Father God, we praise You this morning. We worship You this morning. We want to give You honor and glory this morning. We want to exalt Christ Jesus today. We want the Holy Spirit to be honored in us. Father God, be praised. And Father, forgive us. God, forgive us for turning to vain things too often. Forgive us for failing to worship you as we are. Forgive us for having cold and still hearts when we consider your word. Father, we confess that such is the disposition of our natural flesh that even when we hear the truth of your word, we are so unmoved by it. Father, forgive us and have mercy on us and show us yet more grace to sanctify us by your Holy Spirit that we may cherish your word, that we may dwell in your word. Because we know that through your word we have an understanding of who you are. We hear from you, O oh God. 
We don't worship a book, but we worship you, our Savior, our God. We know you best through this book. Father, we pray for those who don't worship you. Father, we pray for those who worship the lesser things. Father, we pray for those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. And we pray, Lord God, that you had have mercy upon them. That you would send your Holy Spirit to regenerate and renew them. Father God, that they would have eyes to see the beauty of Christ Jesus. And that they might have peace. Peace with you. Peace forevermore. A peace not as the world gives it, but a peace that surpasses all understanding. Oh, Father God, restore to us the joy of your salvation. Lift our eyes to see and behold our King. Father God, be praised in us, we pray. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.